0: Hi everyone, before we step off with today's episode, I would like to thank our sponsor. Do you have a Jeep JK that you all make your weekend trail rig? Or are you building a 100% custom tube chassis and you're stuck on how to figure out your three or four link suspension? Or maybe you wanna add some character to your Jeep JK, JT, or even your LT? Well, if this is you, or you're even somewhere in the middle there, I highly, highly suggest guys, you go out and you give TMR Customs a call. TMR Customs have been building everything you need for your rig no matter what it is. They have the parts, knowledge, and insight to help you build the best possible rig out there. Tim and his brother Mike have been in business since 2008 and have built everything from a one-ton TJ on 40s to tube chassis that have been racing in series across both Canada and the United States. Did I also mention that they have a one-ton swap kit for your Jeep JK? seriously guys they they have one for themselves it's on 42s and it is a seriously slick rig i highly suggest you go and check it out if you need anything guys give tim and mike a call at tmr customs and let them know i sent you now let's step on to the show How's it going? Thank you for tuning in again today. Today we have another guest on the show. Now, you guys might know, not might not know him by his first name, Chris McCrory, but you more than likely have know his style of welding. He's unobtainable on Instagram, and to say if I was to say his work was art, that'd be an insult because it is so far above that. Chris has worked on everything from Ferraris, McLarens, Bugattis, uh, maybe not Bugattis, lotuses GMs, Fords, and he, it is just phenomenal. He primarily deals with Inconel, stainless, and titanium, and that's who we have on the show. Welcome to the show, Chris.
1: Thanks for having me on, Chris. I appreciate it.
0: Anytime. For those of you who out there in listener land that don't know who you are, Chris, why don't you give us a rundown of how you got into the industry, how you got started, where the passion started for automotive welding, and then we'll go from there.
1: Yeah, sounds good. I started when I was uh, pretty young. I wasn't quite thirteen yet um, when I really got into the. Actually, started working my you know, holidays and summers at a local welding shop that mostly did. Um, like agricultural, like cattle feeders and stuff, but they did have some other cool projects, um, there. So I started off as a complete greenhorn sweeping the floor, washing the bathrooms, making small parts on the brake or the shear, the iron worker, um, just like a, you know, complete noob. um, you know, of course being 12 or 13 and, uh, the passion kind of came from my boss there who's run by a family of farmers also ran the shop and you know they could build and do anything. It wasn't all pretty, but it all worked. So they would like paint take a burned burned down caterpillars like a huff and uh rebuild it from scratch and use it at the business. Uh, they would modify their cars to do they're mostly into the four by four stuff so they would you know modify their their trucks and they had blazers, K5 blazers and stuff. Um so that was a lot of what I what I saw. Of course, my dad was a mechanic, so he was big into the trades. And, you know, dad had a really good work ethic. The guys on the farm had a good work ethic. But kind of what really set it off was like uh, the Boyd Coddingtons and, and Jesse James, which you saw on TV. That's kind of what I really wanted to do. I didn't know how I was going to get there, but I just knew that building stuff was was going to make me happy. That's what I, you know, you build Lego as a kid, you do all that stuff. It just seemed to translate. That's That's where I felt relaxed.
0: Nice. Groovy. So where did you, so, so you went to school then obviously to get qualified and all that, correct?
1: Yeah. So after high school, I grew up in Manitoba, small town, Manitoba. And so after high school, I had been working at that shop since I was, well, between 12 and 13, I had taken one year off to work a whole bunch of other jobs. Um, I did like restaurant thing and videotaping weddings, and then I went back to the shop full time after I graduated, and um, I was the lead hand there. And there wasn't really anywhere else for me to go. Like I was right under the boss who owned the place. Kind of seemed, um, kind of seemed like there was nowhere for me to go up. Being like 18 years old at the time, that didn't seem super exciting to me. So I came out to the Calgary Stampede with a couple of buddies of mine and threw out some resumes and uh, got offered a job at a hot rod shop and promptly moved out here that October and uh, started my career into automotive welding um, without really knowing it, I guess. But uh, I apprenticed as a mechanic for a year at the hot rod shop. Didn't really like the regular mechanical stuff, you know, servicing can cars and doing oil changes and swapping motors and Chevy trucks. Uh, was kind of the stuff that I was getting to learn on. Um, So I kind of went back into the welding trade and went and worked at uh, Twister Pipe in Calgary here. And they build like culverts and grain bins out of galvanized steel. And then I went to the train shop after that. And that's where I started my actual apprenticeship and started to get involved with actual schooling. And uh, yeah, so I did go down the path of going to uh, tech college and, and getting my journeyman ticket my red seal and and then uh out into the you know wide world of welding all over the place
0: nice and then after a while i know just personally because i obviously we know each other personally here um i know you ended up teaching at Sate for a while and then that's where i'm a little foggy that's where you got introduced to titanium correct
1: yeah so i had kind of done everything that i I thought I wanted to try an industry. I had done high rises like iron worker welding, uh, concrete forms, um, you know, regular structural stuff. I had just kind of never really felt like it was the end for me. Like I wanted to stay the place I was at. I had been there for five years. I was a lead hand and uh, I kind of wanted something new. So I applied to the city of Calgary and to state. Because um, some of the guys that worked for me um, had suggested that I go there because they thought I was pretty decent at training them. I always took training pretty seriously when I had people underneath me as a journeyman. So I was glad to hear that uh, it didn't fall on deaf ears. That um, you know the flack that I got from some of the owners of the companies when um, they would come in and see me, you know, actively training somebody, and and that doesn't always look good when you're sitting there talking to somebody or trying to explain it instead of just working.
0: Um, so so anyway, you're supposed to learn though.
1: Exactly. But I, I had, had never really met any like really open-minded owners that saw the value in that. Of course I saw the value as a lead hand because I was what they called like a, a working foreman or a lead hand where I it was up to me to look after like, I think I was up to 11 guys at one time in that part of the shop. And uh, I just found that the more I trained them, the less I had to worry about. And so because I always really liked doing the job, too. So I didn't just want to have to run around and babysit everybody all day. I would spend as much time as I could, probably half of my day, training them how to do the job um, the best that I could. I was already pretty decent. You know, it was mostly uh, flux core, Stick, and MIG. And I had been doing that basically my whole career. And uh, always cared, always gave a shit. So um, I had gotten decent at it. And so I felt like I was in a good position to train these guys. And we used to kind of have some fun with it. You know, we would have races, you know, we would gang up on teams. And of course, I had learned that, you know, as the boss, I had to pick one of the weaker, you know, people in the group and, and team up with them and, and then, you know, race the, the next two guys that were like my right hand, right hand guys or whatever, just to have some fun. And it was a pretty good environment, uh, but the work got boring because it was so repetitive. So anyways, I applied at the city of Calgary for a change of pace and I also applied at SAIT. I got offered both jobs, and I chose SAIT, uh, which was actually a pretty tough decision because it was my one of my only jobs in my career where I worked five days a week instead of four tens. So that was a big decision, but I thought it had uh, a way better future in it. And that was the tech college that I went to school at to get my training, and they had left a really good impression on me. So I was like, Wow, well, this, is, this is a pretty good deal. I was only 27 at the time, so I thought, you know, this is a pretty big honor to get offered to offered a job there so yeah i went and taught at state for five years
0: nice nice cool and then <clears throat> how did you uh start getting into the titanium and like the precious i call them precious metals
1: so i always had this huge interest in metallurgy um you know there was i did pretty good in high school in terms of marks but uh, you know college wasn't really uh an option for me nor did i really didn't really have any want to do it. But I was always really interested in metallurgy not just gluing stuff together, but like, why does it work a certain way? And I was big into mountain bikes when I was a teenager. So, you know, all the fancy aluminum frames that were like metal matrix frames and titanium frames always intrigued me. And then, of course, when I got in the industry, there's none of that. It's all just steel, maybe some aluminum. You know, we got into some some of the TTX cars. Uh, the train cars were high strength steel. So we used to use one ten eighteen. But be pretty regular medals and you know I was always into cars and helping friends on the side, and so I just started to get more and more interested. And then when I got the job at State, um, you get a little bit of what we used to call ask time," where you're offloaded um, and you're not instructing, and they're they're expecting you to go take training and improve your just improve yourself. And so I started taking training because they had some great great training opportunities. So I went and took some titanium courses, some canal courses um uh, zirconium courses all over the u.s um and that's how i really got interested every time i did something cool i would learn something more and want to know more about why does this work what metals can you mix together and one of the guys that really left a big impression on me was carl hose from the lincoln welding school in cleveland ohio i went there with a good buddy of mine uh, brian dorn who's uh, also instructor at state still there and uh he was just one of those instructors. I mean, I was an instructor at the time, and I uh, was really enjoying it. Got some good feedback from the students that I didn't suck. And uh, he was just one of those guys that was excellent at telling stories and getting all the points across without, without losing anybody, you know? Like, he can get into metallurgy without, uh, you know, glossing things over, but also, you know, not just rambling on like an empty dump truck, you know? He was one of those guys that just pulled you in, you understood the way he was explaining stuff and his stories always had like a you know some humor in them and yeah so he really inspired me to you know keep learning and we took titanium and inconel there and some of the chromoly stuff i just kept wanting to do more and more and more and that led into more side work you know the side hustle which you know once i had some training under my belt i started to buy some titanium from titanium joe in ontario and and started to take little jobs here and there. Um, And that's how it all started.
0: Cool. Now, um, excuse me, this is also just a bit of a personal question that I want to ask. Or I want to ask, it's a question I want to ask for myself. There we go. Um, Where did you find these schools uh that were stateside like how did you go about finding them and all that other stuff because i know personally i want to take like roll cage design courses i'd like to take a couple titanium courses and stuff like that
1: um basically just a bunch of searching you know i was pretty tenacious in in finding something that was actually interesting the lincoln welding school was super easy it was just their motorsports and advanced motorsports course so i went there for two weeks um, which was a pretty fantastic experience, like I said. And uh, then the other one, one of the other big ones that I took was the ATI Wachang, and they're on the West Coast in Oregon. And they're the ones that deal with the zirconium and niobium. Uh, they also do some titanium alloys. And that was a really great course, too. Uh, you got to deal with one of the metallurgists directly when you're doing your welding tests. And, yeah, it was a good group of guys. There was guys there from from all over. There was another guy there from Manitoba, from uh, Urea. A place that dealt with urea, which is titanium is pretty common and used for. So is zirconium. And then there was guys from some reactors in the U.S. And there was a guy that left a big impression on me from uh, Galveston, Texas. He was a real funny guy. But uh, yeah, lots of guys that could really well were there taking that course.
0: Okay. So I was just making a note there. So it was the, the Lincoln School, the motorsports course, and it's a two-week course, right? Yep. Okay. And then it was ATI Wachong on With the Chang.
1: so W A H and then Chang W A I found them because I was searching for a bunch of material on like zirconium and niobium alloys and then I found that they had uh, these training courses that they offered I think they offered them in two places in the US I always wanted to be go to Oregon so I actually planned it over my summer break because of course being an instructor we got July and August off And so I actually went down there, State paid for the course, but I got there myself. We actually took a family trip and drove down to Oregon, which was a fantastic drive. And I think that was like a three or a four day course. And then we stayed around there, went to Crater Lake after and then made our way back. So really neat place. There was uh, ingots there of uh, zirconium that were like 20,000 pounds and uh, they were worth about a million bucks each. These like raw ingots before they started processing them, it was... uh, fascinating place they had electron beam welders there and super heavy duty industrial stuff like for aerospace and and all kinds of stuff that uh, um that they basically couldn't tell us about um but it was yeah a great experience and like I said getting to deal with the metallurgist directly uh, was a pretty fantastic uh, pretty fantastic experience to talk to somebody like that and he was super passionate about his job which was nice to see
0: yeah that is awesome that is that is really cool um yeah so you went to the lincoln school there you got all your courses for welding titanium and that how did you then start unobtainium like how did you find your market for uh essentially welding really high-end exhaust for supercars like how did you how did you crack that code how did you get into that egg
1: well i didn't uh i'm a big believer in training uh which a lot of a lot of people don't really agree with these days you know everybody's just kind of like i'll oh, just give it a shot i don't really have anything against but uh, i really like to get some training first before i start doing that kind of stuff so i had people asking for titanium because it was already a tiny bit trendy like some of the really fancy japanese manufacturers um like a muse and stuff had titanium exhaust for some of the better japanese supercars like uh, gtrs and and supras um but I was like, man, I don't have a clue how to weld titanium. I was already doing like quite a bit of side work with pig welding. I started that uh, like maybe 2003, 2004. Now, when I went and took that course at Lincoln, it was 2008, the very end of 2008. So as soon as I got back to my training course, like I said, I ordered some material from Titanium Joe and you know posted it on Facebook and a couple of the forums um, that I had got this training and had passed. You know, pass the bend test and whatnot, to, just to kind of put it out there that I wasn't just like, Joe, Blow. I can weld titanium, wink, wink, trust me, um, that I had actually gone out there and got some training, and now I was ready to start learning. So that's the very first uh, titanium job I can remember was for a Subaru. It was just charge piping. I wanted to start with something real simple. And I remember how much I got annoyed because he was so adamant that there was color on it, um, but I really wanted to practice at getting no color. You know, I really wanted to to master that. And, it was, of course, it was pie cuts because there was no sands available back then. It was one of those things where I welded it the uh, best that I could and then just heated it with a torch after uh, to get the look that he was after. And it came out pretty good. It was great practice. Um, but then it kind of just snowballed from there because, you know, I was probably the only guy or one of the only guys in all of Alberta that had welded titanium in any amount at the time. And so I just kept, you know, kind of chasing that, you know, trying to get people to agree to titanium, you know, for little stuff, you know, it went from like one project a year in titanium to a couple of projects a year and then one project a month. And now, you know, I weld titanium every day. So I'm pretty blessed. Um, But it certainly was uh, a lot of perseverance on my part.
0: Nice. Yeah, no, cause you, I remember when you had your shop at the house there, I came out that one time and it was, i don't know it blew my mind it actually blew my mind like i i loved how you were able to pump out your the the product that you are from your home shop because when i everything that i saw online or on instagram or whatever wherever media platform i was uh, taking it from it was i always had the impression that you were in this huge big like professional shop with like you know everything was white glove this and white glove that and you come and you're like, oh, yeah, no, this is my address and show up and it's your garage. And it was just like, this is just even cooler because you were just like, it's I don't know. It, it impressed the hell out of me. Plain and simple.
1: Yeah, I, I stuck with it in the garage for as long as I could. So we were basically bursting at the seams uh, just because I got four kids and uh, they're all relatively young. You know, we're 12, 7, 6 and 3. So I really wanted to wait until at least the majority of them were in school, um, because I didn't just want to have like trophy kids, you know. I wanted to be a big part of their life. I wanted to try and be a good dad, and and uh, working from home was a really good way to help that situation with so many kids and having to take them to preschool and you know uh, kindergarten's only half day, so you got to pick them up. And so it was really important to me to while they were young to try and get as much in as I could. And then uh, just at the end of last year, we got the new shop that we're in now it's a nice upgrade for sure to have some room because we were pretty tight in the garage. I mean, you were there, you saw it. It was, uh, there was no spare inches around. We were pretty efficient.
0: Yeah, no, know. I remember when I walked in, you had, uh, a Lamborghini with a massive Pikachu sticker on the side. And then you had your four, four post four post hoist with a Mustang on top. And then I believe one or two Ducati motorcycles on the floor underneath it. Like you were tight for space.
1: Yes, exactly. Yeah. So, like I said, I I did that as long as I could, and then it just got to the point where, yeah, it's it was stressing me out to be that cramped every day when you're trying to do this thing that
0: you love, and and it just feels like you're in a sardine can, right? Yeah, I know. I know me personally. I'm when I get really excited about something, I tend to i don't i don't want to say rush but move a lot faster than i probably should and i end up bumping into things and honestly i'd be afraid to work in your shop especially if if it was okay you need to take this header and i'll bolt it on that car and it's just like well when's it going to body because i'm i'm more than likely going to scratch it with something
1: <laughs> yeah that was the thing is like it it, it, it became very stressful because of how careful we have to be right and so yeah it was like i said i did it as long as i could which is really probably a year or two longer than i should have um just for you know good mental health because it really was stressing me out and we were getting you know busy enough that working out of the house was probably not the right thing to be doing anymore for the sake of the neighbors and all that it's not like i was noisy or whatever it's just you try to be you know i really like the neighborhood that i live in and and uh, i didn't really ever want to make any neighbors upset and as, far as I know, I never did. So I consider that a success because I was out of the garage for almost seven years. Wow. Time. So I quit states at uh, February of 2012 and and we moved uh, to this new place in December of 2019.
0: So, okay. Nice. Now let, let's talk about because uh, you mentioned the, the mental health si- side of the house there. How did you go about dividing that between, okay, between these hours and these hours? I am not dad per se I'm you know the owner of the company I need to work one thing the other then after that um you know I'm dad I'm a husband like how how did you go about doing that how did you go about separating that because personally I get wrapped up in it and I know if I'm doing it I'm not the only one
1: yeah I mean to be honest I mean I tried my best but uh, I I don't think I was super successful at at, uh, any of it because it's really hard to focus. That was one thing I found. It was really hard to focus on your family um, when the garage is right there. You know, like I try to take some time off on weekends to spend with my family. We go for a walk and then, you know, it's time for everybody to relax a little bit and pull some weeds and chill out. And, you know, uh, I'm itching because I'm like, well, there's this car in the garage that really needs to get done. Or there's this order I have that, that uh, I really should be working on. But, it's yeah, so I struggled with that. Quite a bit to be honest and if i had known that having a shop like this would have gave me that necessary separation i would have done probably a long time ago i i do enjoy leaving the shop locking the door and then going and spending like quality time with my kids and my wife where i'm not itching they could just go in the garage you know that to be my big thing you know when the kids would fall asleep i'd be like oh there's no sense sitting around i might as well go work in the garage and and then you look up and you get involved in something and it's 9 30 at night and all the kids are in bed already again you know like they've done their nap they've been up for the day and then yeah you've missed it so i don't think there's any perfect way to do it um i certainly could have i think i could have looking back i could have done it better but that was kind of the thing is i i really just tried to work as much as i could when my attention would be the least appreciated so there was lots of times i'd go and work from like you know 10 o'clock at night until two in the morning and uh and then you know i don't miss my time with my wife or my kids because they're already asleep and of course that's not really healthy in the long term so it has its own complications because then you're tired And but yeah i just i just kind of tried to work whenever i could and and uh spend as much time with the family as you can when you're not stressed about getting work done
0: Yeah. Holy crap. Yeah. know. I, when I kind of, I've done the, the flip flop opposite of you Like we sat there and we had our big, big shop there in Alderside that you'd been out to a couple of times. And we, we recently moved our shop and our house onto the same location, just about 10 miles West of there. So I got my, my big shop here and I'm still in the middle of setting it up, but I'm catching myself on that where it's just like, okay, yeah, no, you know, Saturday, Sunday, they're just, days of the week that where I can work. And I know, uh, when was it last Monday? Yeah. Last Monday, Sarah's sitting there and it was like 11 o'clock in the morning. And she's looking at me. She's like, are you not going to go to work? I'm like, no, why? She's like, it's Easter Monday. Like you, you usually work holidays unless we're like out camping or have something already pre, 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 and it's like, no, um, I, like, I need to take me personally. I need to take like an active, like, no, this is, this is the line and I will not cross it. Cause as soon as I cross it, it's just a downhill slope. Cause then it's like, no, I'm working till 11 o'clock. And like what you said, like, or later, cause I've, I've pulled a few all nighters before. And that is, that was horrible. But.
1: Yeah. That's one of the things that I did more than I should have, but you know, it it's really hard. And because you hear about people that are your vision of success whatever that happens to be whether that's a nice car or you know better work-life balance or house paid for whatever it is you know i looked at the people and i always you know was like well there's there's work that needs to be done you know sometimes you got to do the you got to do whatever it takes to get it done so yeah i pulled some more all-nighters than i really should have um and it wasn't that they were all that bad um once you train yourself to actually like eat really healthy, drink lots of water, that's how you get through an all nighter, have lots of fatty stuff like nuts or bacon is a way better way to go than just coffee and sugar, uh <laughs> to make it through the night. Um but uh it's, Did it's you not, say bacon? Yeah, uh, I said bacon.
0: Okay, all right.
1: <laughs> so something that'll stick with you so you don't have these like sugar highs or carbohydrate highs, right? That's what I found anyways. This is how many all nighters I did that I I actually, you know, tried to apply a little bit of trial and error to not crashing at three in the morning. Um, Because that's what I always found the hardest when I would just do like coffee and whatever leftovers were in the fridge. Um, I would always have this hard crash at like between three and four in the morning. And then once you would get through that, it wasn't too bad until like maybe 10 in the morning. And then your body was just like, okay, you know, we've been up for 27 hours or whatever. It's time to figure this stuff out. But part that I didn't like about it was, of course, then you have to get some sleep sometime. And then you're kind of like a zombie because I can't sleep very much during the day. So I might get like, go to bed for three hours and then wake up. And then you're trying to spend time with your kids and your wife or whatever. And you're just not really there after a, an all-nighter. You're kind of a a bit of a zombie. So one of those things that I I don't completely regret, but uh, I, I probably shouldn't have done any more than I did. And it's not something I think I want to do at this point in my life or you know later on at that's foolish young people kind of stuff, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And no, if, if I have to, I will, but I'm not going to go out of my way to pull an all nighter. Yes. I mean, it,
1: at the end of the day, generally you're not, uh, you're not getting paid anymore to do it. So unless it's absolutely necessary or helping somebody out, you're probably better off to just, uh, get to bed, get some sleep and get up the next morning and try to kick butt.
0: Yeah. Okay. So you start off doing exhausts. Um, doing exhausts and one thing and the other like that. How did you evolve? Like, how did how did you sit there and say, okay, you know what? Th- there's a market for these exhausts and that, these downpipes. And one thing they like, how did you grow on Obtainium to where it is today?
1: Um, Sort of just by reading customers and trying to pay attention to the books because what I started to realize was as much as I like to build roll cages, um, I love building triangles and try to build really strong structures and pay a ton of attention to how they attach to the chassis because I've seen so many failures based on terrible attachments of a nice cage. I started to realize how many hours I was putting in the roll cages, you know, like a hundred plus on a really, a really wild cage, and uh, you just couldn't get paid for it. You know, the people were much happier to spend the same amount of uh, money on an exhaust um, as they were as you, they would a roll cage. And I had all these, you know, certifications and tickets and aerospace tickets to make sure that I could actually weld a roll cage properly over top of my journeyman and B pressure tickets here in Alberta. Um, and people didn't care. There was always some guy willing to do it for five hundred bucks or a thousand bucks, and I'm trying to charge five thousand for a roll cage that took me a hundred hours, which is a, a terrible payback. And somebody would and you know was happy to spend three thousand bucks on an exhaust that you could do in half the time, and it didn't make a big mess in the shop like doing a roll cage that did. So it it really kind of burned my chaps to not do roll cage work. But just from a business perspective, it didn't make any sense because people wa- wanted exhaust. They want the beautiful welds. They want the shiny exhaust. They want the killer sound that comes with it. Maybe some extra power depending on the application. Um, but the rule book tells them you need a roll cage. And so few people actually cared about safety, where I would bust my butt and work until two in the morning on this roll cage, trying to make perfect fit up and, and make the nicest welds that I could and focus on the, all the attachments. And, and all they really cared about uh, was that the rule book told them they needed it, and so they don't actually want it. So I started to get out of the roll cage and chassis stuff and more into the exhaust,
0: um, just because it made better sense. So how did you Okay so okay in my mind while you're saying this just so everybody else knows wh- where my thought process is you're doing titanium ink canal stainless exhausts at the same time as carbon roll cages
1: Yeah so mostly stainless exhaust and the odd titanium one but that that was the other big issue is in my industry uh training and experience we had done some you know, stainless specific separation, like completely separate a part of the shop, mm-hmm. and uh, I had learned a whole bunch about that process, and so I was super anal about mixing the two um, in my shop. And so when we would do a roll cage, we would have to use all all separate, uh, you know, flat discs, sanding belts, grinders, um, wire wheels, everything completely separate, kept in a plastic container. And we'd have to cover up or put away all the stainless material or projects we had on the go. So it was one of those like crazy things where it's like you're getting paid less per hour for this job. And it was actually quite a bit more work. Um, So that was kind of the other angle was because I actually cared about not contaminating my stainless projects. Um, It was just, just the mild steel work was honestly, you know, quite a bit of work. And then the cleanup that we had to do after, you know, we'd have to, down the garage and vacuum everything and yeah it, it to do it you know even remotely carefully like we were doing not perfect but very careful uh it added so many hours to each project
0: my lord because because that's that that you answered exactly what I was wondering and thinking was like how the hell would you like the like clean up after one of the other if you I know I know you would care, but like a lot of people wouldn't. And it's like, Holy crap, like man.
1: Yeah, no, I'm sitting I'm sitting up in the office now at the new shop and we have three of those plastic bins still full of stuff that had touched mild steel and and so I mean that stuff is only good for mild steel jobs. And so even if you look at the money, like I bet there's a couple thousand dollars worth of abrasives and stuff sitting in those containers that I can't use until the next mild steel job, which generally you don't get paid a top dollar for anyway. So this is one of those things where, I, you know, it finally started to click that it just didn't make sense to try and, if you care about cross contamination, it doesn't make sense to try and do both. So yeah. I rarely take mild steel jobs at all anymore, unless it's like a quick little repair that I can cordon off a part of the shop and, you know, only use the, you know, these come up and get these bins, bring them down, use the tools, take them back off. You know, we blow out, vacuum, and wipe down the grinders and die grinders that we use and. Yeah, it's it's just a pain and so it's like I said it broke my heart to do less roll cage work and stuff but it just became obvious that it wasn't a good business decision if I really wanted to do stainless and titanium and L exhaust properly.
0: Yeah. No, I I'm I'm 110% with you on that one because I know here, well not just here but in my company in general, I hate cross contaminating especially on the saws themselves, the the grinders, I'll just swap out the disc and that's it. Like, I won't worry about blowing out the grinder. But, like, the saws for me, that's the big thing because you got, like, I got my big, uh, mech uh, bandsaw and it's coolant. And no matter what, 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 what you try, unless you like actually like pull the blade out, blow out all your rollers clean off your table, clean out the vice, the whole nine yards, and then use a different tank for coolant, there's always contamination of some sort. So what I ended up doing was I just got a, for now, in the interim, got one of those cheap um, chop saw, well, I shouldn't say cheap, it was fairly expensive, but a cheaper solution than buying a completely dedicated aluminum chop saw. I went to Princess Auto and got one of those uh... sorry, let me back up. Instead of Buying a completely dedicated aluminum bandsaw, I went to Princess Auto and got a chop saw, but it's the one with the. Um, it looks like a massive. Tips. That's it, yeah. And that there, it cuts ten times faster. Sometimes, if I'm doing a lot of cutting, I do have to use a little bit of uh, cutting wax on it. Like I use the Walter Cool Cut, I think is what it's called. Yep. And I'll use that and just chink 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 chink. And we're done and away I go. I Maybe take a file to it, knock off a burr or two, but it is so much faster. And the it's so much time is being saved just by having dedicated cutting tools.
1: Yeah, no, I did, I did exactly the same thing, Chris. I'm happy to hear you say that because with the bandsaw, with coolant, there's no way to isolate it. I mean, we used to turn off the coolant. To cut some of the stuff, because even when I was consulting, I had to do some of the, like, GT90 coil tubing alloys and stuff like that. I used to do welding procedures, mm-hmm. and that's pretty tough stuff, and it's big pieces with lots of cuts. And so we would just cut the cut the coolant off and uh, cut the stuff in there, but then we saw that there was rust in the coolant, so we'd have to, you know, stop what we were doing, clean the saw, take it out, wash it out. and it, So it, it got bad enough where I did the exact same thing, where I was just like, you know what? Mild steel and even the steel alloys are a joke to cut in comparison to titanium and stainless. So I'll use the coolant and the fancy saw blades on the stainless and titanium. And we bought the same thing. We went out and got a a slugger. Is it a slugger? Yeah, it was was from Quick... uh, What the heck is the name of that company called in the U.S.? Tricktools.com. And uh, got one of those, same thing, carbide tip saw. We even tried cutting some stainless with it, but to be honest, the, the number of cuts you get is is pretty low. Mm-hmm. But for like aluminum and any kind of steel, like roll tape tubing, um, that saw does a beautiful job. And you'll get like 200 to 250 cuts out of it pretty easily if you're not a Neanderthal on the saw. And <laughs> it's, it's dry. It Like you said, it makes a beautiful cut. It's It's a really good way to go. And, you know, like even that saw was only like 600 bucks, the blades get a little bit expensive, uh, but we had them sharpened in Calgary at all blades. Uh, so, you know, I think that, that was like $25 once they were worn out. So that cut our cost quite a bit. And and we ended up having a little bit of an accident with that one where a, an off cut piece, one of the apprentices was cutting uh, a piece, and the off cut piece went up into the, the guard and destroyed it. So, I didn't have one of those for a while. So, I went and bought a vertical band saw, same thing, dry, no coolant. We used the wax on that. And so, we used that for most of our aluminum cutting for jigs. Mm -hmm. And then, um, about, oh, maybe, I don't know, maybe June last year, a fine saw went on sale at KMS Tools in Calgary. And so, I I bought myself a replacement. We still have that one. It's a really nice saw.
0: Yeah. When you said it's
1: the same thing, it's the carbide tipped 14 inch blade deal, which really works
0: good. Yeah. When you said you had an accident with uh, one of your apprentices there, I'm just like, oh, dear God, something hit one of the cars, something flew off out of the saw and like scratched the paint on one of the cars. That's what I was expecting you to say.
1: No, no, thankfully it didn't uh, (laughs) do anything except wreck the saw, but it scared the crap out of her. That's for sure. I heard it from across the shop and I was like, wow, what was that? And it basically just took the off cut up into the blade and then ran interference between the blade and the guard and snapped the guard in a few places and bent the blade and but i gotta say uh you know we used it for a little bit after we kind of patched up the guard but it it started to get a little sketchy i think it had hurt the motor but still i cannot believe it wasn't catastrophic failure like the actual safety shield on there did its job
0: so that's good that's good that's what it's
1: there for yeah i'm glad to hear that uh i'm not the only one that's obsessed about that and those cold cut saws sorry dry cuts i think is what they call them Mm -hmm. are one of the best ways to try and save that contamination because of course it's the same reason you can um, use a file on all the materials you want because the carbide doesn't harbor any um, materials right it's much harder than anything you're going to use it on so if you just have a file brush you can file some mild steel and then you can file your stainless if you don't want to buy a bunch of files and the saw is the same thing if you really need to you can use it for everything um, because it doesn't really get contaminated like the coolant does or the fine teeth on a bandsaw,
0: yeah exactly, but um cool, so ah, oh, damn it i'm losing my I lost my train of thought <laughs> so um let's actually you know what let's let's kind of like tar- start to take this over to some of the questions that i that I asked you um what are your have have you ever had the opportunity to work with vets before or anything like that? Uh, not in my business. No,
1: but when I was working um, at a place called OHM steel, when I was pretty young, I think I was a second year apprentice. Um, there was a, a veteran there that I know of, you know, some of these guys, you know, you don't get to know. So they may, they may have been veterans without telling me, but there was one guy there that said he was a um, a veteran. He was actually American and had married a Canadian lady and he was the boss there for a little bit. I don't remember his name specifically, but, uh, yeah, he had, he had been in the, in the army in the U S and, and, uh, you could, you could tell he was a, he was a pretty regimented guy, you know, like he had a, a nice system in place in his life. You could tell. Um, so that, that kind of left a good impression on me because I had toyed with the idea of going into going into the army when I left high school, cause I wasn't really sure the path I wanted to take to build stuff and I thought, you know, if I could get in there and and uh go that route to getting my mechanic mechanics ticket or whatever, that that might be a thing, but it just kinda ended up the other way. But that's the only experience I've ever had was that one that one fella that I like I said that I know of specifically. So oh, okay. I mean my brother in law was a was a, a vet. He was over in Iraq I believe in in the early wars. Uh, like, I want to say like the 91, I believe. Oh, uh, go, um, uh, golf war. Yeah. Golf war. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And he had, he had some, some pretty interesting stories. It, it had definitely changed him. He said, seeing what he saw over there and, uh, he was, you know, he was a super hard working guy. I didn't, I didn't, he wasn't super regimented, but he sure had a hell of a good work ethic and, uh, had no quit in him. Um but yeah, he told me some stories that, uh, yeah, it didn't seem like, it didn't seem like something that I regretted missing. You know, when he talked about some of the things that he saw with some of the combats and some of the injuries and stuff, of, especially even just of the locals. Um, yeah, it sounded, it sounded like it would test a person.
0: Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, I can't my, my computer shit the bed today, so I, I can't read my questions. Um, is there anything you would like to chat about, go on about? Actually, let, let's talk uh, about your new shop. One of, one, of your,
1: one of the questions you had on here, the biggest obstacles uh, went, that I might've hit. Yes. Um, that, that's a good one to talk about. Cause I think anybody that does anything they feel is worth doing is definitely going to hit some obstacles and it's really important um, to get across to people listening to this that might be starting this journey, that you really, you really got to have some thick skin. Because um, I'm no different than anybody else. Uh, you know, I was always pretty good at welding because I had decent hand skills, but I mean, I've gotten a lot better. And there was lots of shitty welds that I did, um, where people would be like, "Oh, you know, like, you know, you're never going to pass this test, or you're never going to do this," and and uh, luckily, I only failed one test in my whole career, which was the slot. I think it was the slot seventy eighteen CWB test that I did at that same place, Ohm Steel. It was one of the first tests I ever took, and I had passed all the other positions. We had tested all the positions that one day, and some flux core. It was either the slot mega or the slot seventy eighteen, but I remember the the tester um had called the shop and and told me i had failed or i had called to look into it and and it was pretty disappointing um and i got a lot of flack for it because it's supposed to be the easiest one when in all reality we know that the flat one is the one that really gets failed the most for lack of fusion and that's exactly what had happened to me and i never failed the test after that because i i paid a little bit more attention and took it seriously but there's going to be lots of times where you're challenged and that was definitely a challenging time. When I went ironworking, I was so afraid of heights, I could barely get on top of a ladder. Uh, but it was one of those things that I really wanted to try to get over my fear of heights. And uh, I was tested pretty hard by one of the bosses he saw, how scared I was, and basically told me that uh, this wasn't a, a job for me and um, I should go home and <laughs> think about my life. <laughs> basically fired me but didn't fire me told me to you know go home and think about it and uh, so I uh, I went home and thought about it and came back to work and gave it my all and by the time I was done that uh, I think I was working there about a year I could I could do what I had to do to get the job then, I could walk the buildings I could walk the high-rises I wasn't as fast as the crazy iron worker guys that were jumping from from uh, Joyce to Joyce, uh, but I could I could do the job and and I could certainly well. So yeah, I, I was that was a definitely a challenging time. I had my wife told me to quit um, because I was having nightmares every night for like three weeks Holy. And uh, I I probably should have quit, but looking back on it, that's one of the one of those points in my life where I was glad I stuck with it. And oh yeah, I was definitely as scared of heights, and and uh, now I'm just cautious because I went through that I haven't had to do it since I was in my early 20s but I'm sure glad I did it and I could have easily given up and and still been that guy that was scared to get at the top of the ladder so try to push through the fear and uh, don't let people tell you uh, you can't do it because the only person that can determine what you can and can't do is you
0: that is very true 90% of failures in between your own ears so yeah
1: um, what are some of my biggest ambitions? Yeah. I'm not, uh, not a terribly greedy guy, which makes me maybe not the best candidate to run a business, but, um, I have learned a lot through the years and the biggest ambition I have is I would really like to continue to do what I love and train and get people doing the same thing. Um, and just have a place that people will enjoy coming to work. And I think, so far, that, uh, that's what I've created, and I want to keep growing a little bit. Um, we still can't keep up with the demand, but the training here is so slow. Like I tell anybody that applies here, um, wants to talk about it. I tell them it's sort of like the samurai apprenticeship. You know, like when you come here, you're not gonna you're not gonna be good at it and be banging out the final welds on the exhaust in months. You know, this is years to get to the point where. Um, you can meet the expectations of me and, and the reputation I've built with my customers. Yeah. So that's my biggest thing is to, you know, have a company where people want to come and work, want to come and learn, and we get to do the kick ass stuff that we're doing every day. So I'm, I'm, I feel fortunate to have gotten to where I am. It's not over and, uh, I, I would like to grow a little bit. I don't think this is like a 50 person company, but, uh, I think it's like, somewhere between four and 10 employees and trying to keep the quality uh, world class as
0: much as I can. So I got two questions out of that then one at your new location, do you plan on running courses?
1: I do. It's something that, um, I honestly don't know exactly how we're going to do it yet. I have quite a bit of good office space here. It was one of the reasons I took it was looking to the future. Uh, so we do have some space, but of course, one of the big, um, I guess requirements of a course is having enough welders and uh, you know, we spent quite a bit of money getting in here and outfitting the place and stocking up for materials. And so I just don't have a ton of money to blow on having, you know, six or eight welders to run a a course where everybody can have their own welder. So I'm, I'm building my way up to that. I think we have four good welders now. Um, So I'm, I'm sort of there and I'm really trying to shoot for winter you know, late fall, winter to run the first course where I'll offer some take um, training and a little bit of fabrication training to start with and see where it goes. But yeah, it's definitely in the plan because I've had lots of requests. And honestly, I love doing it. I've gone down to Vegas a couple of times to teach with uh, Justin and the Fabrication Series, and and it's always a blast. So it's definitely something that's in the cards.
0: Nice. Um and then the second part of the the second part of that question that I have for you is you said it's like a samurai apprenticeship where it takes years to essentially get there. Do you have um, like a training program in place at your at your shop where it's like, you know, the, like uh, this year, essentially like the, the apprenticeship that you and I have both gone through where it's like, you know, year one, you're going to learn this year, two, you're going to learn that year, three, you're going to learn this and then so on and so forth. Or is it just like... As they, as that individual grows and evolves as a welder, as a fabricator, as a craftsman, they're going to sit there and then you're going to evaluate them as they go.
1: Yeah, basically it's the latter. I mean, I, I'm a pretty big believer in the apprenticeship system. And so, of course, anybody who isn't a journeyman, um, I'll apprentice them. And I take that pretty seriously. But I am, of course, going to lean on the apprenticeship to do part of the training that i really can't do or you know like stick welding and MIG welding we don't really do any of that here we're pretty tig specialized at the moment at least and uh besides that my my kind of training program is starting at the very bottom with somebody that's new and green and uh going from there you know teaching them the importance of how to hold things when they're being cut how properly to prep for a weld and then like some of the polishing that we do um packing then we get into tacking um and and then like i said welding is down the road so like one of the the ladies i have working for me her name is kara she's a journeyman and she started with me part-time in december of 2018 and then went full-time april of last year and she's now just starting to do welds on exhaust because the whole time I've been training her on how important fit up is tacking, you know, rooting some of the stuff. And then I cap it and she watches and, um, yeah, it's quite a long run up. Uh, but yeah, so I, I do have like a plan in mind, but yeah, it is competency based, uh, depending on where you start. And if you, like I said, if you're green, um, it's definitely going to be hand in hand with the government training.
0: Okay, nice. Now let's say, uh, you get somebody who's an apprentice. Okay. Or Mm -hmm. you you sign them on as an apprentice. So they're like as green as green could be, but they're super gung ho. And they're like, you know what? No, I want to, you know, somebody has done it, done this in two years when they've gotten your approval. This person wants to do it in like 14 months. How, what, what machine would you suggest that they go out and pick up so they can sit there and start practicing these skill, the skills that you demand that your employees meet at home?
1: Um, to be honest, I mean, I have a Dynasty 350, and I've used some really good Lincoln machines, and those are kind of like the two top machines that I use throughout my career, um, and happily so. I was a big Miller guy because we had some some board issues with some of the Lincoln welders. If you bounce them around much, they didn't seem to last. But to be honest with all the, the way the the industry is going and the availability of much more affordable welders for, you know, people that are training and hobbyists and trying to get their, their torch time in. Um, there's so many choices, you know, I would say you basically have to spend a thousand dollars on a welder. I'm pretty biased to the Everlast, uh, welders because I have some. I know the owner and uh, he had sent me one to try and and it didn't go well. So I sent it back right away. And uh <laughs> it wasn't actually because of the welders, because of the accessory like the regulator was garbage and the pedal was garbage. And I don't have time for that. It doesn't matter if the welder costs you nothing. If you're wasting time dealing with garbage then that costs me money and I don't have time for that. So uh, I send it back and uh of course there was a conversation that came with that. And, um,
0: (laughs) I can only imagine uh, what that was like.
1: Yeah. So then we talked about like, how do we get one of these welders in my hands without wasting my time or his time. And so we came to an agreement. He sent me a 325 EXT. I've been using it ever since he got me a, I think it's an SSC or SCC pedal, um, much better than the one that was on there. And I use my own regulators because of course we use the extra high pressure bottles. So Mm -hmm. I just bought my own regulator. And like I said, that welder has been flawless, and that was like five years ago. So I've used uh, that welder, and then we got uh, the new MTS 275, and that's a great little welder. So I'm pretty biased towards the because They treated me good. And to be honest, like the, the arc starting on those welders is m- so much better than my, you know, my Dynasty's pretty old now. It's a 2007 model. So it's getting pretty long in the tooth, really, um, versus these, you know, fancy new inverters with all the better arc starting technology. But, you know, Everlast, um, CK has their own little welder now. Um, I think the uh, the yellow one, ESAB has that little Rebel, I think, which seems to be pretty good. But I only have experience with the Everlast uh, personally for any amount of time. And so I'm, I'm happy to recommend it to, to people As a good starter machine, because they're definitely affordable, and like that 325 EXT that I have, cost like about a third of what my Dynasty cost me, and it's basically ninety percent of the machine. So it's pretty tough to beat that kind of value for practicing. And all the newer machines will kind of work in your garage on much less power than the old beasts that uh, that I used to run early on in my career, which would require, you know, anywhere from fifty to eighty amps, which is pretty tough to have dedicated. Um, if it's just your garage and you don't live on an acreage
0: yeah exactly well even then like the acreage that we're on i thought we had 150 amps here because that's what the main breaker said outside on the pole and then you come inside and the electrician's like yeah no that's what you can take but you only have 50 for the whole property it's like what the hell so i'm holy moly oh yeah <laughs> oh yeah Yeah, I know when we when we go to do the final um, electrical work in the shop, we're going to sit there and we're going to have it so that, yes, there's a 200 amp panel in there, but it's going to I can't remember what the proper terminology is called. But essentially, I call it over over wiring the shop where, yes, we can sit there and have a 200 amp panel, but if I run my welder and the mill and the air compressor at the same time, then it trips. I can only run two pieces of equipment at one time, which is fine because honestly, like when I'm welding, I I hardly ever go over like 200 amps on my Dynasty 210. And even then I'm rarely ever pedal to the floor because of the uh, gas mix that I'm running. I'm running helium argon and it just, man, it just saves so much time. So...
1: Definitely. I mean, that was one of the other reasons that we finally had to, you know, jump out of the garage because we had the whole property at 125 amps of service. Um, and I was using like 75 of it for the garage and every once in a while, uh, because I had uh, employees, um, we'd be both on the sanders and it would trip the breaker. And so I actually wore the one breaker out, had to replace it. And I was like, man, I don't, I don't, I don't have a, a reasonable cost fix for this. Mm -hmm. so you know it was it was it was kind of one of those final things where you're like yeah maybe it's time to move out of the garage because i was starting to be power limited i I couldn't buy any more equipment um not only could i not fit it but i didn't have any power for it so that was kind of the nice thing when we moved to the shop here too is i i thought we had lots of power but uh, by the time we moved in and i put the big smoke sucker in we added a welder we added a plug we added a sander um yeah I'm basically out of power again in like a true industrial base. I think it's 200 amp service um, oh, holy but it, it goes now we don't have any breakers tripping because I did a whole bunch of like 20 amp um had the electrician put in a bunch of 20 amp 120 120 volt plugs mm-hmm. and we have an extra plug for uh two uh, tw- 220 volt and uh, but yeah it's it's it seems like it's impossible to have too much power <laughs> from my experience
0: yeah oh yeah yeah no that's that that was when i was at my old shop we had we were limited to 100 amps and by the time we got everything in there it was like okay all right well we need to start thinking about do we need any more equipment especially when i had the when i had everything in there it was just like holy crap it was ridiculous like i really wanted to get a uh, uh plasma plasma table yeah but as soon as I sat there and I started thinking about it, it's just like there's no point because then I'm I'm not going to be able to do anything else while, while that table connected. is running. And it's like, well, that's ninety yeah. percent of the reason why I got want to get a table. So
1: yeah, so you can be doing something while that's doing something, right? That's how you make money. That
0: that yeah, exactly. <laughs> but
1: and that's something we should, uh, I guess, make sure we get across to the listeners is if this isn't a problem when you're by yourself. You know, you can't really run the sander and the welder at the same time when it's a one-man show. So you, that's why so many people can. That's why I got away with it for so long in my garage. I had lots of, you know, decent equipment like a a real tubing bender and a bandsaw and a welder and a hoist and you know good sanders and of course I'm only using one at a time. So you're never really power limited like that.
0: Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I I think this. Next question is going to be really f- fitting, especially with this whole Corona bullshit that's going on. Um, where do you see the industry going? What What do you think is going to be the next big push to get people qualified in, and the next big industry to pop up, or skill really set? Sure. Sorry,
1: I don't. I don't really Ooh. know. I mean, when I used to be an instructor, I used to always tell the students, "If you want." 'Cause you know, the whole machines are gonna take my job thing is always it's been people have been saying that for thirty years, and don't get me wrong, I'm sure I'm sure it's happening on some little scale. Uh it's mostly just increasing efficiency. But if you want to be sure that you have a career, I think you wanna be the guy that can stand on your head and do a weld in a tight corner kind of thing. Um, because that's one thing the machines are, are never really gonna be able to do. Not anytime soon anyways, but if you you know, if you're if you got a pretty easy job, like you're sitting there spooling pipe, or you're sitting there welding in the wheel all day, um, machines are pretty good at that stuff. And so you always want to have like a really nice broad skill set. But in terms of where the industry is going, I don't, I don't really know. I mean, the oil and gas is in the toilet here in Alberta. I mean, a barrel of oil here in Alberta is worth, you know, almost less than the barrel you put it in. Um, so, that's going to be a, a tough road for that to crawl out of the mud here for, I would say, probably the next couple of years. It's not like things were going great, anyways, before this uh, COVID came in. Um, I think TIG welding is is a really good skill set to have, uh, just because even on pipe welding, once you get good at it, it's pretty tough to be faster. You know, some of these machines, like the STT with the Lincoln and the, the Miller process, where they do pulse MIG for the root is pretty quick. Um, but at the end of the day, you still have to you know grind your tack quite a bit, which can slow you down. So that's why TIG welding can be really fast for like open root pipe welding, at least for the roots and the reinforcement passes. Um, so I think TIG is kind of where it's at in terms of that. But I think stick welding is one of those skills that I'm so happy that I did a lot of it um, because it's just one of those things that if you're going to have to go fix something in the middle of nowhere it's really the best option. I mean, with these battery operated welders now, you really could take a TIG welder out in the field and get, you know, maybe half an hour of TIG welding in if that, if that's what, if that's what you need to do, or if that's what's available. But stick welding is such a great baseline to have, um, to keep the work, you know, because when times are tough, the guy that can, you know, even if you don't have a truck, um, if you just have a stick welder, um you can you can get out there and fix farm equipment, you can get out and you know fix industry stuff, you know, bobcats, whatever you want. It's pretty tough to beat to be able to have that as your
0: base skill set and then and then build from there. I one hundred percent agree on that. If you if you have the basics covered, you'll you'll never be out of a job.
1: Yeah. And I think it's pretty tough to know too much. I mean, I bounced around a lot because that was one of the things my dad told me, you know, like make sure you go and get lots of good experience so that you know what you like and you're not a one trick pony, you know, you're way better at problem solving if you have a little bit more of a varied experience under your belt. And so I did lots of that. And it definitely didn't hurt my career so far. Um, so, you know, bounce around, try some things, try to learn from as many good people as you can and, uh, yeah, always have an open mind to learning. You'd be surprised some of the places where you learn stuff you never thought you would. You know, whether it's helping your buddies on the weekends with their race car, maybe, or you know, helping your uncle, you know, pour some concrete. Or there's always something to be learned from just getting in there and doing some work.
0: Hmm. Um. So I recently uh, got a book the other day, and it, it, you when you said the learning part never stop learning, it's what triggered it, and it was one of the first it was the first welding and fabrication book i ever read and it was the it was loaned to me from the same guy that taught me how to weld and anyway i ended up having to give it back and wasn't able to find it for years and i was on the trick tools website and i ended up finding it on there and i picked it up i can't i it's not in front of me so i can't ramble off the name but what books would you suggest people read if they want to get ahead, if they want to sit there and understand, okay, you know, this is why this weld keeps breaking, or this is how I fix that problem, stuff like that.
1: I, I think the James F. Lincoln Foundation has some great books, um, like Drawing Interpretation, and I thought they had one, Why welds Crack that's one that i have I, th- I think it's from there um they have shop drawings one of, of course one of the baselines that you and i both had during our apprenticeship was uh metals and how to weld them that's a fantastic book mm-hmm. gives you a real general knowledge it introduces you to a lot of the materials out there that can and can't be welded
0: i have a copy of that gets right here some,
1: gets into some good metallurgy um another good book is uh uh, the other blue one we used to recommend at the State, the trade Metal Trades Handbook. That's a really good one. Um, I have a lot of books. I, I bought some really good stainless steel and titanium books off of Amazon when I was, I was an instructor. Because I just loved reading about uh, metallurgy in particular. There's some good fabrication books out there. Um, especially on like trick tools and Amazon about uh, you know, turbo fabrication, chassis fabrication, um, some basics about, you know, suspension geometry and stuff like that. Basically this, the sky's the limit. I mean, there's still, I think there's still three or four books I have that I haven't finished reading yet. Um, to do with like metallurgy and stuff that are really good. And it never really seems to hurt. There's some books that I've read that we kind of had a lot of overlap from another one that I had read, but it was still totally worth reading it. Mm-hmm. I think uh, people people don't read enough. Um, especially from what I've seen anyways in the trade, you know, it seems like everybody thinks that just going to your job and doing your job is enough, but uh, oh God, no, if you really enjoy it and you want to get ahead, um, read a couple of books and you'd be surprised how much it helps you in your day-to-day just, you know, learning the basics about, um, curry points and carbon contents and all that kind of stuff is is so helpful, especially when you're talking about repairs. You know, knowing the difference between austenitic and ferritic stainless steel and um, you know preheats and some of the series of aluminum, all that knowledge is is um, it's key to setting yourself apart from the guy that won't read a book. When it just boils down to it, I mean, if you want to try and stay employed or keep the work coming in you have to have something to offer that's above and beyond the average person and and reading a book is a really good way to get there.
0: Yeah. That, that, or being that one guy where you see your bosses, they're like scratching their heads being like, why isn't this working? Uh, this, Hey guys, this, this is why, and this is where you can find the information and then walk away. And they're just like, Oh,
1: okay. All right. (laughs) Yeah. Asking questions can be, especially if you have, uh, you know, like I always tell, uh, my employees and apprentices ask. I mean, I don't always have time to give you the complete breakdown, but uh, for God's sakes, you got to be at least a little bit invested. You know, if, you, if you're curious why I'm asking you to do it a certain way or why we're preheating or why we're doing this, why we're using this rod, uh, just ask. I'll tell you as much as I can. It, it doesn't hurt.
0: That's true. All right. Well, do you have anything you'd like to talk about? anything going like that or uh
1: no not really this is uh this has been good i enjoyed listening to your listening to your podcast so hopefully people get uh some tidbits and some some stuff out of you and i chatting here today
0: awesome well thank you very much for being on the show chris i really appreciate it and no problem
1: at all thanks very much for having me
0: yeah uh where can everybody find you how can they get a hold of you
1: um unobtainium on instagram or uh, and gmail.com is my email and uh Justin the fabricator and I are doing a starting a podcast ourselves so that'll probably be out to maybe in May we'll start releasing those I'm pretty pretty accessible can't always get to all the messages in the dm but uh yeah I'm always happy to help where I can and 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 try to help out uh, those trying to advance
0: themselves in welding for sure What's the name of the podcast so people can look out for it? It's the Fabricators United podcast. Fabricators United.
1: Yeah. So it's easy to remember. It's the FU podcast.
0: <laughs> nice. I like it. I like it. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, once again, thank you, Chris, for being on the show. Uh, if anybody has any questions, please. Uh, please reach out to chris if you have any questions for me you can find me at the veteran welding podcast you can find me at uh veteran welding on instagram the veteran welding podcast on instagram and other than that that's it we'll talk to you guys later uh make sure to subscribe and we'll catch you on the next episode have a good one